Hey, fellow tennis nerds, I hope all is well. Today I have something a bit special, a legendary coach from the States, Rick Macy. I'm sure you've heard of him. He is the USPT national coach of the year for seven times. It's pretty amazing. Hall of Famer, trained Andy Roddick, Jennifer Capriati, Maria Sharapova, Serena Williams, and Venus Williams. He's featured in the movie King Richard. He's an absolute legend in the game. How are you, Rick? I'm doing great. Glad to be here. It's going to be a lot of fun. Uh, so you just returned from the court, and we talked about this a bit before we started. You're still doing lots of hours on the tennis court every week. Yeah, you know, ever since uh, I got into it, I've always been on the court, and here I am at, at 68, and I still teach seven days a week, about 50 hours, a lot of one-on-one. -on -one. And what's interesting, no matter what age, what level, it could be a five-year-old, 12-year-old, number one player in the nation, someone on the pro tour, I even had the number one 80-year-old guy, 80-year-old guy in the country who wanted to learn the ATP forehand. He hit the forehand kind of like Connors, flat as a pancake. So, you know, anybody, anytime. And uh, my favorite students really was on the other side of the net, that hour, that minute, that second. So I still have the passion and want to do this as long as I can. That's amazing. That's amazing. And your body's holding up. If I was 50 hours on court, I would be injured all the time, I feel like. Yeah, no, you know, everything's good. You know, I run a half mile every day. I, I try to stretch. I eat right. But listen, you know, as well as I do, you can do all the right things. And some of it can be genetics and luck of the draw. And, you know, that's you got to appreciate your health. And I still feel great. But the main thing is the mental attitude. I love to help others more than really helping myself. And I just love being on the tennis court. And when you feel like that, you feel like you're hardly working. It's not hard work. When did you found this incredible passion for coaching? How did you find it? Uh, first off, great question. You know, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't even pick up a racket until I was 12 years old. I grew up in a small town, Greenville, Ohio, about 30 miles southwest of Dayton, Ohio. I played golf, basketball. I played every sport. I was a very good golfer. Uh, my father passed away when I was like 10 years old. I went to the park. We lived like a half mile from the park, and I picked up a racket. And started hitting against the wall. I really liked it because it came back every time and there was no arguing or anything. I just fell in love with the game at 12 years old. Listen to this. It's crazy. And no one really played. And I it was a small town, 10,000 people. I kind of taught myself how to play. By 18 years old, I was the number one player in Ohio Valley. Crazy. You know, and I was playing at a high, high division one level. I beat a lot of All-Americans. But at 22, I kind of knew... I wasn't going to make it on the tour and I played some futures and stuff and I got into teaching and I got a gift to communicate. I love to analyze things. I love to figure things out. I still, that was another little piece of the puzzle, but I think the motivational part of it, just wanting to help others, you know, the Midwest values I grew up with, with my mom and sister. I think a lot of those values are the cornerstone of my coaching. And as you know, as you go along, you learn the education. I know a lot more now at 68 than I did at 48 or 28. Um, but I still have that drive, you know, as I did back in the day when I taught Tommy Ho or the Williams sisters or Capriati or Tennant. It doesn't matter who's on the other side of the net. And I just try to get better every day. And uh, I can honestly say I got better this morning. That's great. No, I think that's always the 1%. You always want to improve. And I think I've seen that also in your, also your videos that you're and you're very like motivational talk. You seem to have this attitude of always evolving your coaching and, and evolving how you 
work with tennis players because the game is always evolving. So how did you kind of, how do you keep up with the game and how it's changing? It's much more fast paced. They hit the forehand differently, which, which you, you noted earlier. How do you keep up? First off, another great question. And hopefully any coaches who are watching this, listen, my motto is simple. If you're not getting better, you're getting worse. Okay. So even though I've had a lot of success, remember in, in 1988, I had Tommy Ho and Jennifer Capriotti. Tommy was 15 and he won the boys 18s as a 15 year old. And that record still stands today. Younger than Chang, Agassi, Sampers. And Jennifer, as a 12 year old, she won the 18 hard court and clay court. So I had the daily double. I had two young kids and those records still stand today. So this all kind of started back then. And here we are today. And you can go through the medley of players that I've worked with, but it's not just them. But I think that just if you love what you do and you have this, you know, attitude of wanting just to help others and always look at the positive, you know, a winner finds a way, a loser make excuses. I'm actually a little bit more of a life coach, even though I know the ins and outs of the tennis part. But to really answer your question, I've always been on the cutting edge. Um, with that, you know, with stroke mechanics. And then, you know, about maybe 15 years ago, uh, when I partnered with Dr. Brian Gordon, who's one of the top biomechanists in the world, you know, he came to me with a lot of 3D stuff. I was fascinated. And I can honestly say I learned more from Brian at watching things at four or 500 frames a second that the human eye, even though I tell people what you may see is different than Rick may see, I saw things very differently, even without video, you know, because I analyzed, I would just be like a woodpecker trying to figure this stuff out and keep pecking. But then when I knew exactly the cause and an effect and the culprit, and it was backed up by science, then we took this to a whole nother level because I had Brian's background as a biomechanist, and my background be able to motivate, educate, and then explain it to the consumer in a way that they would understand it. And so you saw that long ago when we described or I described what was going on on the men's tour. Because if you looked at their forehand, they looked a lot different than what was going on with the gals or the club player. Shorter backswing, faster racket speed. It was all it was all science related. It's all physics related. So I broke it down and explained it, and that thing just went viral. You know, I did it with USPTA. Um, and from there, we just keep evolving and keep adapting or whatever. And that's one of the reasons why I probably have more young players, say under 15, that come to the academy for stroke mechanics. Because if you can get optimal mechanics on a world-class athlete, okay, that has an amazing work ethic, as a competitor, something good is in the oven for the future. But you know as well as I do, if you have maybe a flaw with a grip or a backswing, then you're trying to reverse engineer this, put Humpty Dumpty together, 17, 18. And I work with a lot of pros and they want help, but they don't want to change. You know, it is kind of a tough thing. So I just always try to improve. But really, Dr. Brian Gordon uh, has been the biggest influence with the stroke mechanics. And he's with me at the park, he does a lot of stuff. And early on in my career back at Greenleaf, uh, when I first had Capriati and Ho, I did a lot of stuff with Dr. James Lair. So we were both cut from the same cloth with the mental part of this. 
because I grew up doing it on my own. So I kind of knew the mental part of this. And then as you go along, you get other stuff. And then I, as the game started getting quicker and faster, this collaboration with Dr. Gordon has just taken it to another level because everything I say, I can expedite the learning curve right now. Or it's not like you got to work on it for three months. Yeah, I think that's amazing. And uh, it's also coming from it at a different angle because tennis is obviously a, such a mental sport, but it's also such a technical sport. Like the technique is is always changing as players improve, as coaches also improve. So what do you think of tennis, uh, the state of tennis today with guys like Alcaraz and Rune and and these guys? What, what, do you follow it? Do you follow the tour? Oh, absolutely. You know, when you hear something crazy, I taught Christian Rude back in the late 80s, early 90s, Casper's father so you know it kind of shows i'm still going strong and i met up with him last year at the miami open when he got to the finals and lost alcarez but yeah no i still do a lot of video and i do a lot of stuff analyzing the top players game um and i just did something really on alcarez i'm glad you brought it up because as you know when someone is at the mountaintop or someone is as successful then other coaches they get that endorsement and it's kind of a copycat cat thing now, more people are going to teach a drop shot. Where when you did it before and you missed it, it's like, you knucklehead, why are you trying a drop shot? And if it goes in, you hug the guy, you know? Obviously, you don't do it because you're nervous or it's a bailout or you're whatever. But he's kind of given the stamp of approval. Let's sprinkle that into our game. Let's take the second serve, hit it, and come to the net now and then. And he's doing it on clay, okay? So when someone is successful at the top, he literally is going to not only transcend the way the game is taught to other coaches, even the players on the tour know that they got to get more versatility in their game. To keep up with him. He's kind of giving it the stamp of approval. But to really answer your question, people got to understand the athletes in today's game. Movement is at an all-time high. Movement is at a premium. When you talk about Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, Murray, Alcarez, all the, all the Medvedev, all these guys move like Batman, Spider-Man, Aquaman. I mean, these guys can fly. And if you're not there, you're not going to deliver the goods. I don't care if your strokes are textbook. I've had people look like a million dollars and not play that good. I've had people not look that good and they play like a million dollars. So that cuts both ways. But now you're getting these high-level athletes that move. Like, like no tomorrow, they're quick and fast. And you really don't appreciate it because the guy on the other side is moving just as well. So movement's at an all-time high because tennis today, even on the women's side, is getting more like advanced pinball. Yeah, for sure. And it, it's right. amazing to watch them play at this high pace all the time because it, it puts extra pressure also on the body. So the bodies need to stay fit and so on. I mean, you, they recently produced uh, this movie, King Richard. I guess a lot of people ask you about this. You work with Venus and Serena. Um, you still keep in touch with them? Do you? I mean, you had a very good relationship. Were you involved in the movie? Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, no. First off, yeah, I still uh, am in touch with Venus and Serena. Uh, Richard lives in West Palm. I go up to visit him now and then. Uh, listen, you got to remember, they were like my own daughters. And Richard was my best friend. I tell people, I should be in the Hall of Fame just putting up with that guy for four years. I mean... Listen, but that's the art of coaching, as you know. I not only train the kids, I train the parents. 
because they're let's face it, they're out of control. Also, they tell me what to do. They tell me how to hit the ATP forehand after they get comfortable. What what is that all about? So, but you know, you got to know when to keep your mouth shut and how to say it, when to say it, why to say it. But no, the the movie I talked to Bernthal many times. John Bernthal, the guy that played me. Um, I didn't know I was that wired up, but people said, "Yes, Rick, you are kind of like that way a little bit." Uh, his mustache was a lot bushier than mine. I had a little had a little piece of astroturf back in the nineties. Um, but one thing I loved about the movie, and they watched video and they read my book and stuff like that. It showed how much I cared, and it showed I was on a mission and how I took a risk. It's one thing for me to say I believe in you. It's another thing to put millions, not only of hard cash, but sweat equity. Because remember, I teach 50 hours a week. If I'm spending four or five hours with Venus and Serena, I mean, this went on for four years because I was going to expedite the learning curve. And if you people see that videotape of them when they're 10 and 11, and then when I took Venus to make her debut at 14, it's crazy, you know, the amount of improvement. But I was putting on, I was putting it in on somebody that I just saw something inside these two little girls that I haven't seen to this day. Everybody tries hard. Everybody has certain qualities inside. I never saw two little kids try so hard to get to a ball. But that doesn't mean you're going to be world champion. You know, you can try hard and work at Burger King or McDonald's, you know. Okay, you might flip the burgers better. It, but then I start projecting six feet, 160, 5'11", 150. Remember, early 90s, if you were big and strong, you weren't that nimble. So I not only thought after I saw him compete, because I didn't see it at first. Remember, I had Capriati. She was poetry in motion. She was already top 10 in the world at 14. And Jennifer had great, great fundamentals by the late, great Jimmy Everett. So my blueprint for greatness was like no other. I didn't see it at first. But once we started competing, it, it blew me away. And after I saw uh, especially Venus, because Serena was smaller, I told Richard, and this is in the movie. I said, come here. Let me tell you something. You have the next female Michael Jordan on your hands. And he puts his arm around me. He goes, no, brother, man. I got the next two. And listen, we eventually teamed up. The rest is history. But I had to fund the project. It could have been, they could have got injured. Could have blown up. I could have been wrong. I tell people all the time, I'm, I'm wrong a lot. That's why I'm right more than often, you know? So now the movie was spot on, the walk, the talk, one-liners, the clothes. It was, it was almost exactly, it kind of blew me away. I wasn't consulted on the movie. I should have been, okay? Uh, it would have been better. I have stories like you have no idea about Venus, Serena, and Richard, those little kids. I mean, just, it'd make you laugh and cry. And when I went to the after party, uh, and I was with Venus and Serena all night. They were literally crying. Remember, we went back down memory lane, and they're looking at this from age 10 to 15 through different eyes. When I was bringing these stories up, I mean, it was crazy. So I think the movie would have been even better, even though, in my opinion, it was amazing. But almost everything in there was spot on. But I think the most important thing was how much I cared. Uh, it didn't go from Compton to center court like the narrative maybe was. The people maybe in tennis knew I coached them, but they didn't know I took that gamble, you know? And uh, it's because I believe 
I've been asked to do it tens of thousands of times since, and I haven't done it. But that will lead to the next question. I'm doing it right now for this little girl from Ukraine that we can talk about later. Yeah, that's great. I've heard about that. And uh, how, how? what do you think, before we get into that, because it's always fun to hear about the next level, and I understand how surreal it must be to watch yourself being portrayed in a movie. Also, a, you know, a big movie. It's, it's a big deal. Uh, but what do you think is like your best skill if you can give yourself like a rating of how do you find, how do you see that talent, that kind of grit that you need as a tennis player? Like what, what do you think is, what do you bring out of the player? Um, I think the number one job that any coach should do, but the best quality I have, uh, I figure it's a lot, but I get them to compete better. Anybody, anytime, anywhere, run for every ball, you know, flip it in your mind. It happened 20 years ago. You got 20 seconds to reset and just be a brutal competitor. And that's why I love Roddick. He was like a mosquito. The guy would lose. He'd just be bugging me. Can I play him again? I, I knew that he's going to be a great pro. I didn't know he'd be like number one in the world and win the U.S. Open because he was a little guy, you know. I didn't know his serve was going to become nuclear in his forehand. But I think that's the number one quality. I just get people to compete better and I get them to believe. I get them to believe. Even with Venus and Serena, even though they had this Compton street fight and I saw all these qualities, I had to put it together. If I said, make the backswing shorter, Richard would say bigger. I had to wait till he leaves so I could go in there and kind of put this thing together, you know? This didn't happen overnight. And you could imagine all the problems that occur every day, you know, that hitting partner. I mean, there's a lot that can go wrong six hours a day, every day, four years. I mean, that's that's a lot. But we were like family on, on in an emission. So I think that's the number one thing. But another thing, when you talk about Venus and Serena, I never talked to them about other 12-year-olds or 14s. When they were 10, 11, 12, I was talking Davenport. I was talking Hingis. I was talking to Mentieva. I was talking Moresmo. I was talking Navratilo. I was talking, that's what this person's going to do. We never talked about that. I would talk about pro tennis and that girl's going to get it. That lady's going to get it. So we got to make it better. So like Venus and Serena, they always tell me, Rick, you're almost brainwashed to be number one. We were like supposed to be number one. We're great athletes, but their mind was always you're going to be there. Now, that being said, you got to have the thoroughbred to win the derby. You can't, you can say all that stuff and you can't do it to a donkey, you know, but I knew what they had, but we trained the mind and I created the most positive environment. That greatness was definitely on the horizon. Yeah, it's amazing. And I think that's so important to actually compare them to what's actually the the number one or number top 10 players instead of just talking about this is your ceiling at age 16 or whatever you're you're opening up their minds to this can actually be a great thing but you need to put in the effort so i think there's yeah, no uh, perfect example say they had a great shot i said that's great you know a girl top top 10 in the nation of 12s wouldn't get that okay capriotti's going to be there smiling balanced and rip a winner cross court so you got to hit a sharper angle so you compliment them but you always push for more, but you do it in a way uh, of joy and passion and not that, oh, you're never satisfied because a lot of coaches, unfortunately, are a little too negative. Yeah, and I think that it's it's a tough balance, right? Because you want to be honest and sometimes brutally honest, but you also need to keep building them up and not 
breaking them down, I think. And that's it's a balance that you have well, to keep. Well, as trust, me, trust me on this. Richard was brutally honest a lot. So I let him do the brutally, brutally. I was brutally. I picked my spots. But, you know, you're right. You, you need both. And they both carry the same amount of weight if you can balance it. Yeah, the balancing is the key. So talk to me about this uh, Ukrainian girl I heard about that you're working with right now. Yeah, no, first off, uh, it's ironic because they just left today to go play tournaments in Europe. Um, she has a brother, Slava. He's top five ITF also. I'm with a management company called Edge. We represent about 14, 15 players. And I evaluate talent around the world. Okay. A lot of them are more 16, 17, 18. They're already top 10 in the world. And I say, listen, I think you should sign them. What Edge does, they give them an opportunity. They fund the project, they pay for the coach, they pay for the travel. And obviously they're banking on getting it on the back end and then becoming, you know, top 50, 30, 20, or, you know, a great champion. So they sent me this video of this little 10-year-old girl from Ukraine. And when I saw her moving around the court, I saw ballet. I saw, you know, she was like Barishnikov with a racket. She would stop and start like a Mercedes, okay? Just the way she moved. She was small. She had big strokes. Nothing technically I liked. Okay, I was going, oh my God. She had good feel, good balance. Okay, then when I heard about her brother, okay, I knew, okay, there's some genetics. The mom played a little bit on the tour, doubles. I think the father was a pro boxer. So once I found more, okay, I said, listen, you got to have this kid come to Florida or the Orange Bowl. Let me take the temperature. So she came. I checked it out. I saw her live and in color. Got to know her a little bit more. I said, listen, she just turned 11. You got to sign this kid. I have no doubt, okay? I have no doubt if I can change her forehand, ATP, change her backhand like Djokovic. She already has hands like cotton. I got to change the serve. The outside, I can change everything. But there, this girl is bulletproof. I just see greatness if she's in the right hands, and I think we should sign her. So fast forward that whole movie. They moved here. We're funding the whole project. I'm going to personally represent her. So not only coach her, which I do three, four hours a day, okay? I'm going to personally represent her, okay, uh, along with Edge um, as she develops. And I'll go on the record. Uh, the last three months, I've never I've spent a lot of time with her. I've never had a player my whole career change so much biomechanically and pick up stuff so fast than this little girl. Okay. She only 11 and she almost took a set off a 10 UTR this past weekend. You know, no, it's like, no, it's like, there's so much there to work with. I'm excited for her and her family, but here's the crazy part. We didn't, I didn't just change strokes. I changed someone's lives. Life. We got this family out of Ukraine. You see the insanity that's going on there, especially with kids are getting held hostage and stuff. Got them out of there. They moved to Latvia. Now they're come. They're in Florida. They could have been stuck there. They wanted to put the brother in the army. This is brutal stuff. This isn't, you know, this is crazy what could have happened. So I feel good about it. And the fact that she hadn't had a dad, you know, since she's five years old, she's just a mom or brother. They don't have money. Okay, so there's many layers to this. Why I got involved, 
And I told Edge, I want to, I want to do this, but more importantly, I know I can make it happen. And I actually did a video saying, if I can't make this girl number one, I did a bad job. And so what has happened the last three months, I'm very happy where this is going. Nothing's a given. I could be wrong. I'm not. Okay. I could be wrong, but I just see she has what it takes. She's not going to be the biggest. She's going to be one of the biggest here. And in, in women's tennis, the size doesn't quite as matter as like maybe the men do a little bit. Uh, big future. She's only 11. Uh, we'll do another podcast in six years. We'll see where I'm at in this whole thing. But her name is Sophia Balinska. Um, she's a real deal. I love her potential. I've been asked to do this type of stuff. I mean, thousands of times. And looking back in the rearview mirror, where a lot of these kids have ended up, first off, there's no Venus or Serena. This little girl isn't that, okay? But she's going to be, uh, I think she'll be multiple Grand Slams. She could be number one in the world someday. Just like I said about Jennifer at 12. Just like I said about Sharapova, even though Maria athletically was limited. I saw she had that mental box checked at 11, okay? Same thing I said about, obviously, Venus and Serena. Okay, same thing I said about Kennan. Scariest little creature I ever taught at seven years old. She'll win a grand slam. So all five of those, I kind of saw certain things. And I see a lot of those boxes checked with this little girl from Ukraine. But it makes it even better because I'm going to represent her. And there's a whole family dynamic. So at this stage of my life, it's like uh, it's, it's the best feeling in the world to not only change someone's game and make their dream maybe come true, but to change someone's life. Oh, that's really nice. It's a beautiful story, and and I hope for the best for her. And is there any will we be able to keep up with her progress on some social media or like YouTube channel or or through you? Yeah, absolutely. On my YouTube channel, there's a there's a whole video that I did uh, a few days before the Ukraine war one year anniversary. It's on my YouTube channel, and we're gonna probably do an exclusive when they come back from uh, Europe with NBC, or maybe about her story about this. But she'll play all the juniors. She's not going to go cold turkey and not play any juniors like the Williamses. I think you need to learn how to win and lose. But the Venus Trina were such brutal competitors. Maybe that worked for them. But I wouldn't recommend that for anybody watching this. I think you need to learn how to win and lose and smile and cry and learn the geometry of the court. And especially now, the game's different than a long time ago because it's much faster. So, yeah, you'll be able to keep track of her. And uh, it will be interesting to see where it all ends up. That's great. That's a great story. I, and I will keep keep following that. And I hope to do another podcast with you. And, and when we have a more about... more thing, I yeah, probably yeah. should have said this first. Family is a great family. And that's another reason why I did this. They have humility. And they have gratitude. She not only picks up all the balls on the court, she'll pick up balls on someone else's court. She'll pick up balls that are out in the grass. And she says, thank you after every lesson. So as a coach, especially at this stage of the game, you know, I've seen it all and I've done a lot. Those things mean a lot. And when you're like that naturally and it's real, any coach or teacher, whether it be on a sport or in a classroom, anybody listen to that, listen to this. You'll get more out of the teacher if you're like that because it's this human nature that they want to help you more just because you have an amazing attitude as a person. Yeah, that's that's nice. I think that's extremely important. I mean, because tennis is is kind of like a 
your reflection of life, you know? So if you can be a good person on the tennis court, you can also be a good person off the tennis court and, and vice versa. And that's an important skill. A lot of people are also entitled, you know, society's different. People are a little more spoiled. You know, they want their kids to be rough and tough, but they're, they're, they're kind of like marshmallows at time, you know, and you, they're entitled and they don't appreciate quite as much. So when you get that, Okay. And you get someone that's quick and fast and a brutal competitor and getting great strokes and wants to be number one. When you get all those things in that direction and it's a team effort, uh, you couldn't ask for anything more. Great. But is that a, a key aspect you look for is the attitude of the person, like the people you've coached, the attitude, is that one of the key aspects for you? Yeah, but that can be changed. You know what I'm saying? I've had people that, you know, I don't mind if people get mad. I don't mind if people are negative. I don't mind if people throw their racket or scream or yell. That means they have passion. I'd rather have that than if I knock on the door, they don't they never answer. They're in a coma or whatever. So I'd rather have that. Roddick was like that. He was a live wire, but I loved it. You know, he was competitive. So the attitude, I can I can help them out. I got more stories than anybody in the world about how attitude controls altitude and the positivity and how to look at the game of life through a different lens. You know, I, I, and I inflect that. And when I talk to all the kids, whether they just want to play high school tennis, college tennis, they might have a, a future in pro tennis. This is what I do. I try to change attitude and more people come back to me because now they're doctors, lawyers, accountants, you know, they're four, 30, 40, 50 years old people that, you know, I work with in the past and, the work ethic that I instilled in them with a positive attitude. And they pass that down to their kid. Just like Casper Rude, when he won a tournament, he goes, my dad, even I'm tired, my dad always told me, winners find a way, losers find an excuse. And he learned that long ago from his coach, Rick Macy. So these, this is more important than the forehand or the backhand or the serve. You know, how someone's wired, okay? But you can influence that as a coach. And I take a big responsibility in that. Because I know how to do this and get people not to make excuses and to get people to try harder. Because whatever's inside of them, I look at it, it's my job to extract that. Because no parent, no coach knows what's inside another child or another kid. No one does. Their kids, their brain doesn't even work yet. You know what I mean? The, the brain's not fully developed. You know, so you can't pass judgment. Okay. If I showed you the video, I showed this to someone today of Serena at 11 hitting balls. I've had 10,000 people say, my kid's better than that. And the moral of that story is you don't judge a book by the cover. But what was under the hood was a brutal, brutal, ruthless competitor, pit bull, you know, work ethic. There were so many inner qualities. That's why I took the chance. So, yeah, if some, I don't need someone that has an amazing attitude. I can work on that. I just want someone that's going to give 100%. And if they don't, I try to do it. A great work ethic, okay? And uh, the technical part, I can, I can develop that. But it's more that they're all in. They're, they're all in. I, I'm going to go and see how good I can be. And that's what I try to stress to everybody. When you work with players of different ages, because I guess you still work with even like recreational players on certain levels, right? Yeah. What? How would you see, like, for example, changing a stroke? A lot of my viewers and followers, etc., they they have maybe a forehand or a backhand that they hate, you know, and they they try to look at a million videos and they try to find a way. Uh, 
is it kind of hopeless if you're a certain age or should you <laughs> should you um give up and just keep with your strokes no it's not hopeless okay first off i love the question and i might like this question i know it sounds crazy with everything i've done as much as any because i get just as much satisfaction out of teaching some adult player who's a three five or four oh who comes in because here's what i do differently than anybody in the world like I said earlier about expediting the learning curve, I can change the position of the elbow. What I do is I'll take the forehand. I change the origin. What I mean by that, how they take it back. See, when you start the process, your brain and your racket go, I've been there, done that for 10, 20, 30 years. That's why you said, is it hopeless? See, everybody's telling them you're hitting it late. Your elbow's too close. Hit the ball more in front. Bend your knees. I, they tell them vanilla. They tell them a symptom. I'm going to rewire the whole muscle memory. I changed the take back. So now the brain is going, I've never done this. And I put the elbow in a different position. And people literally freak out, especially the adults, because they're hungry for a little improvement. And they immediately feel the racket faster. Okay, the stroke is shorter, more top spin. And I changed the muscle memory. I changed the beginning, the take back. Once I changed the beginning, the during and after is changed also. But most people do it the other way. They're telling you what you're doing wrong. So I start from a brand new situation. And I'm telling you, whether it be thousands of adults around the world, even on Zoom, I do a lot of Zoom. I do maybe 20 a month Zoom for all levels. People are blown away. I do this very differently. It's not just what you know, okay? It's what you know and how to correct it for you. Like if I was helping you, your problem's going to be different than the guy I have next hour. So it's a very different. You don't read a book and say, this is how to coach. This is how you do it. That doesn't work like that. Everybody comes with issues. And I got to break it down and look at what, are they too tight? Are they too loose? I got to get them to relax first. There's, I could go on and on. We could do a whole podcast on that. So then I changed the technical it's not hopeless. I change more forehand, backhand, serves. The, the volley's kind of vanilla because it's standard around the world than anybody. And people are blown away. And you, it's it's the best feeling in the world because they come back and say, you know, you're, you're like Buddha or Sensei or Abhagar or whatever. I didn't know half these words meant because they felt something they never felt. And they learned more in five minutes than they did in five years if they want to change. Now, some people, you don't want to change anything, then it's a workout, then you just help them out strategically, and they go into combat with the weapons they've done their whole life, but maybe they could have done a little bit better. And there's even many people on the pro tour, okay? Perfect example, you know, uh, Oko's dad, you know, wants me to help, I've helped them on the forehand, which many people have the last five years. Maybe at the end of the year, she'll take a few months off, and let's face it. She had the ATP forehand. I think she dominated, and that's a whole nother discussion we can have. Because she's an Olympic sprinter with a racket. So to answer your question, the recreational player, I can help anybody in thirty minutes, and they'd be blown away. That's great. No, and I, I've I've seen your work on the forehand, especially because I think that is one of the things that people worry about in their own game they think like okay i have a continental forehand old school or they have you know something that 
try to resemble Roger Federer, which is which is not quite the modern forehand, but uh, so it's you think it's worth actually if they want to change it to put in the effort to change it. That that's really the, if, the message. If they want to, it depends on the the end game, but no doubt I can and I would just I can change this stuff if they want to change it. Okay, it's not a beauty contest, and not who looks the best. Okay, if they want something quicker and faster and shorter, okay, and go to another level. See, I think you should always want to learn. See, people practice, but they don't work on their game. They practice, but you got to tweak things, whether it's your stance on the on the serve or your grip or how much you turn your shoulders. There's there's so many subtle nuances, okay, that I would point out, okay. And this is kind of what I do, the corrective techniques. And you've seen it on a lot of my video, like it's how to correct it, how to say it, why to say it, when to say it, who to say it to, how to say it. And if that door is closed, I go through another one or another one until I can connect this thing. And it's not one size fits all. So anybody can improve, but the technical is the hardest. And that's all in the eye of the beholder and how to do it. Yeah, that's that's beautifully put. Do you think that there's a when we you seem like very you know strong in the you're thinking around the mental game and also maybe bringing that outside tennis? Do you think there's a greater understanding of the importance of of your mental strategy in in sports in general, but in tennis specifically today? Absolutely, you know that's the wild card. Listen, you can have people that have amazing forehand, amazing backhand, amazing serve, and they go, "How did I lose to that guy two and two when I have everything better?" You know, there's something that says kind of knowing where the ball is going, getting there, getting set, loading the system, playing the percentages. You know, so in tennis, it's brutal because you're by yourself. Okay, you're you're by yourself. And then how you handle the problem. Okay, you have 20 seconds to make it like it's 20 years ago and go back to the fence, turn your back and be in a bubble like I saw the great Maria Sharapova at 11. I told Yuri, the dad, when I had her, listen, the forehand's kind of dicey. I, the movement's not, you know, she's not Venus. Okay. But mentally, she might be the best I've ever had mentally, but it was already baked in like double extra crispy. You get it at birth. You can't buy it over the internet, Walgreens, public. You can't buy it. It was there. The ability to forget. She was amazing. And I think if you look at it, she was almost like a machine. Like you see a lot of these guys at the top, they're all ritual. So yeah, no, that's the wild card. It's hard because we're humans. And when we make mistakes, we have an emotion go through our body. And that emotion is usually not happiness. Now you can get mad or then you're going to get determined or you're going to get mad and lose confidence or mad and, you know, get tighter. So this is the, this is what hurts a lot of players. And that's why you see some players much better in doubles, simply because they might have all these other good qualities, can't make it in singles. Because in doubles, you miss a shot. And I tell this to the kids all the time. You miss a shot in doubles, you go hug your partner, you give a high five, and life is great. And you miss it in singles, and you feel very different. So you're letting the, the situation control you instead of you control the situation. And that's why some people are better at doubles. It's not as much mental, obviously, and you're only covering half the court. So there's not as much mental to deal with or movement. And that's what you see a lot going on in, in, in doubles. So, yes, at the end of the day, the, the and that was one of my strengths, you know, the mental toughness 
okay, because I didn't have world-class stroke, but I knew how to compete. And I think that background of doing it on my own, you know, not having a dad, never having a lesson, that's how crazy is that? I've never had a lesson in my life, okay? And I teach more lessons than anybody probably in the world, you know? Um, I did have mental lessons when I worked with Jim Lehrer back in the 80s, but never really had any lessons, okay? So at the end of the day, that's another staple of my teaching of doing it on your own, you know? Uh, if it doesn't kill you, you're okay. You know, sometimes it's, it's okay. I want kids to fail so they they will succeed. I want them to do it the hard way. And so, yeah, the, the mental part is huge. And that's what I love about Roddick. And I knew it. Listen, he was a little guy. He was number one in the nation when I had him at 12. He came to me at nine. He had his older brother, too. Amazing competitor. Okay. And I knew that he'd be a very, very good pro because he wasn't going to go away. And there's guys out there you can go down and you say, they're just going to be there. They're going to, and that's what I think it's all about as a coach. Just don't go away. And when you're that Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you become that. You become a creature of habit. But if you're in and out, that's what separates great from good. You know, great is rare air. I know it's a package. There's movement technique too, but this is what makes better in the Dow joke, but these guys different. It's one thing to get there, kind of hang out there a little bit. It's another thing to stay there. It's this, okay? And it's not the chicken and the egg. I'm just telling you, it's how you look at this stuff. And um, But that's the wild card. But you can train for that also. It's a little bit can be genetic and family environment, how you handle stuff, okay? But you can also train for that. And the best advice I give anybody and this is why I try to tell the kids. I say, listen, if you're not going to listen to me, who are you going to listen to? I want you to do this. Watch how Federer looks after he loses a point. Look how Rafa looks after he loses a point. Look how Sharapova or whoever, look how they respond to failure. You know, and I like to tell the Djokovic story when he had match point and a guy hit the line three times on match point and Djokovic just shook his head and clapped and smiled. And the next point, he hit an ace. The next point, the guy hit in the net, and he won the match. Where a lot of people would say, Jesus, I'm the, so unlucky. You know, you could take that 20 different ways. Greatness flips it in her mind. And I actually tell people it is what it isn't. You got to be able to reverse it in your head. Yeah, the winner mentality. It's, it's everything, right? So how do you predict like the five, uh, you know, the next five years on the men's and the women's tour? Very difficult question, but interesting to hear a response. Um. Yeah, some people are a little surprised. I mean, I went even three years ago. I called Alcaraz. I even called him winning U.S. Open, you know. Um, I say you're going to have Djokovic isn't going anywhere unless he gets hurt. So that's don't throw him out of the barn yet. He's still the leader in the clubhouse. He's not going anywhere. You got the Jokers in there. You got Alcaraz. I'm putting Sinner right in there, okay? Medvedev's not going anymore. Ruined, however you pronounce it. He's not, he's going to be in the mix. Okay. And I, I might catch people off guard with this. I think Corda, I think Corda is the best of the Americans. He's the most talented. I know he's been injured. I can see multiple grand slams. I, you know, Fritz is good. Francis is a good friend of mine. Riley. I know a lot of these guys, but that those would be the ones in my opinion, um, that are going to be there for a long, long time. You know, um, Alcarez, 
Believe it or not, everybody thinks he's going to dominate on clay. I think he's better on hard court. Um, my only concern about him is I don't want him to get injured. He moves so violently and he stops and starts because he has such firepower once he starts moving like the game has never seen. Once he gets going, no one's ever moved like that in the history of our sport. Okay, so, but and he stops like that. And he hits quality off of quality. That's a whole where the rest of the world might lob it. So he's a different animal. And but he's more adventurous. And on clay, because it's more mental, he lets people in more. So I don't think he's going to be a rapid type clay guy, but I think he can do damage on the hard court. Center, I think he's dangerous, going to be on everything. You know, I really like his game. Uh, Rooney, I, I like his game. So I think that's what's going to happen in the men, the women. Iga's not going anywhere. Uh, Sabalinka, okay, her firepower when she's like positive, she's going to just play right through you. She's not going anywhere. If Coco can get the forehand under control, she could be the new like leader in the clubhouse. Rabakina, she has a serve. Mentally, she has it. So I see like her in, in the mix, okay? Um, but it's wide open on the women. You've had a lot of people kind of exit stage left, especially when Serena went out the door, you know, not that she was like in there. You're just having a lot of people. Barty said, I'm going to retire young. You know, Osaka said, I'm having a kid, you know, so it kind of, and why not me? So it gives everybody a chance. And now instead of getting to the round of 16 and facing Nadal, Federer, Djokovic, Murray, or Barty, you know, Serena or Osaka, now you're in the round you're in the quarters in one round, you're in the semi. So confidence, as you know, breeds confidence. So that would be the people that I see out there. And I'm sure there's others. Um, I'll go on the record. Maybe she's 11, maybe seven, eight years from now, uh, maybe Sofia Belinska. Yeah, that's what, that's the answer I expected. <laughs> Do you, um, is there any player that you would like to work with just out of like that you see you could do some real improvements? I mean, current top player, for example, uh, that you feel like this could be fixed and better. Absolutely. It'd be Coco Golf because I know the dad, I know the hitting partner. Uh, I'm in Boca, they're in Del Rey. I've talked to the dad. I've given him some pointers about how to do this, but it's tough. You're on the tour all the time. You got to take a couple months off if you want to do reconstructive surgery. I have to reverse engineer things, change the muscle memory. Um, she has very long arms for her body type. She's been doing stuff since she's eight years old. That's a long time. It's easier for me to teach ATP backhand, forehand, and to teach strokes to an eight-year-old who might even be a beginner. How crazy is that? because it's a piece of clay that I can mold and there's no bad habit. Okay, her forehand's not bad. There's just a little bump in it, okay? That kind of comes out, as we know, when there's pressure. You can camouflage it, maybe get away with it in certain situations, but when the fans are in the stands and there's pressure, that's usually the stroke that breaks down. Whether you have a flaw on your serve or on your forehand, usually not the backhand, Almost all the women, biomechanically, they get it for free. Two hands on the racket. When you're a little munchkin, the body leads the hands. So you're connected biomechanically. That's why most women have a better two and a backhand than forehand. Always. You can go back through the test of time. And I studied all 50, all the way back to Capriati, Davenport, Pierce, Demetieva, uh, 
Sellis, Hingis, they're, they're all, their backhands were always better. Some were close, but you get it for free as a kid. No one can mess it up and you can't mess it up either, you know, so it's not messed up. But it would be Coco Golf because she's an American. She's close by. And maybe we'll do something at the end of the year. But I could uh, help her tremendously if she wanted to change the forehand. Because if she did, I think she can dominate. She's the best athlete on the tour. Mentally, she's very strong. She has a great serve. Second serve can be a little dicey. I got to look closer at that. Her backhand's money. Okay. But listen, she's 19 years old and top 10 in the world. So that means something. Okay, that means something. But if she gets a forehand, I think she could uh, dominate on any really any surface. Yeah, that's huge talent. What do you think a bit of a Macy Magic could do for like Nick Kyrgios? You, could he, he needs some maybe. He Well, first off, he'd probably say, you know, who who are you? You know, I don't know. No, he's, listen, he, he's not going to listen to anybody. And that's okay. Okay. He's not, he, you know how many people have gotten in his ear, just like they've gotten in Coco's ear about her forehand the last six years. Well, here we are. It's, it's who's getting in your ear. I mean, I could try. Okay. And, but he's probably talked to sports psychologists. He's talked to guys who've been number one in the world. People have offered him free advice. Maybe his greatness is his weakness. You know, he's a performer. He's an artist. He likes to show, maybe that's his way of dealing with pressure Okay. And like I said, him and Monfils are two of the better athletes the sport has seen, but they don't have any grand slams. They could still get one. Maybe Kyrgios could, but it's not the best athlete. You got to check that mental box. So I sure I'd love to give my advice, but I don't think he's going to listen to anybody. Uh, Cause people, I think given him so much advice. Okay. Um, but if he ever did, it would definitely help. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Because you see talent, but it's obviously different. Some people are artists, like you You put it. I think that's a good way of putting it. Getting to that, like, do you think tennis could need some changes to be even more entertaining? Do you have some ideas or do you see something in tennis today that we could work with to make it even better for the audience, for example? That's an interesting question. You know, it's a, it's a little difficult because people in tennis, uh, they don't like change. You know what I mean? Um, if they, I don't know. It depends. They want to grow the sport. Maybe the crowd should be a little bit more vocal. I know you're not supposed to say anything when people are, are playing. Okay, that would be interesting to be able to play a match and let the fans do an exhibition almost. Let them scream and yell during the whole time and just see. I think the players, I know this sounds crazy, the players might even play better. It might make them relax more because there's more excitement, like basketball, even though they're not as close, or football, or wrestling, or whatever. Instead of like golf, where you're not supposed to say a word. It's just because that's kind of how it's been in the past. So I'd like to see that experiment where you could just yell and scream the whole time during a match. That would be interesting. Now, if you want to change the game, I don't know the rackets are going to change, or the string, or the ball. But if that ever came into play... That would change the game dramatically. What would really, I'd love to see, what if there was one serve? If there was ever a tournament where you only got one serve, I think you'd see different people win and different people lose. That would really be different, people's approach. You'd have more courage maybe to hit the, go for the bomb 
or you're just going to kick it in the whole time, kind of like Agassiz used to back in the day. So that would really shake the game up. But it's it's a little limited um, unless they make the court bigger, which they can't do, which they should do in basketball because the athletes are bigger. But first, that's a great question. I think the fan interaction would be very interesting. And I think more people uh, would tune in and watch if it was more like a, a big party competition. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Francis Tiafo pointed that out as well. And he's really? such a great ambassador for the sport since he is very engaging to the audience. Like he always smiles, he's always positive, which is quite rare. You know, tennis can be brutal on your mind. So I, a lot of guys are negative while he's always smiling, it seems. You like. know what? He's like that all the time. He's like that when he comes to the park, when he comes to Rick Macy tennis. He's like the nicest guy. He's a brutal competitor, but, you know, that that's just him. And yeah, I, I, if he said that, I, I 100% support that. Yeah, it's, that's, that's good. Uh, do you have any future plans for your academy? I mean, like, do you growing your, your, um, your base? Do you have anything in the pipeline that is happening besides this Ukrainian girl that's very exciting? Well, no, that's just basically what we do is very different. We have a very different model simply because I'm on the court every day. I teach seven days. Like I said, you know, almost 50 hours a week of privates. So we have a different model. Okay, I do a lot of Zoom stuff. I do a lot of video stuff, but I'm always on the court. But what's different is, and this kind of happened a little bit. I've always done it my whole life. I've done some motivational speaking and I've done a handful of books. But because all the podcasts I've done and interviews, especially not only because of the movie, but because of Serena retiring and VW might be around the corner, she might be retiring at the U.S. Open. I'm not, I don't have a fact, but I'm just kind of thinking that could happen. People have got to see me other than the tennis court, like you and I. People have seen me this way for 40 years. Now they're seeing me on podcast and interview. So what has happened with Hollywood, they've approached me about some type of TV stuff, like a Ted Lasso type stuff, or an American Idol where called the Phenom Maker, where people try a competition that I'm kind of looking for the next Serena type thing, put kids through drills, see the crazy parent, see all the trials and tribulations that goes into this. So there's a lot of intrigue because of everything I've done with those five kids we talked about, who I said would win a grand slam. It's already on third base for Hollywood. And then they see, you know, I am kind of like the guy in the movie or this real Ted Lasso guy. Uh, so that's kind of in the oven. And as a matter of fact, I have uh, a Zoom tomorrow with uh, a producer uh, who did The Office. Okay, a pretty big hit on. So that's in the oven. We'll see where that all ends up. And I know it's probably going to happen in one way or another. But no matter what, all roads lead back to court number one. I'm going to be on court number one as much as possible. Uh, not only just changing strokes, but changing lives. No, that was such a good uh, finish quote. You you have them like up your sleeve. I think you're you're made for TV, so it, you should go yeah, for that. No, I have so many, you know, and since uh, it's kind of open-ended now, you know, people, uh, you know, they always ask me like, who's my favorite student of all time, you know? And they think it's going to be like Venus or Serena or Capriati or Roddy, and it's not. You know, it's, it's I said this earlier, it's who's on the other side of the net, that hour, that minute, that second. And I've been that way my whole life. And that genuineness connects with that person. You know, that they're the most important thing, you know, and very approachable. 
you know, I've probably done like 10,000 pictures and autographs since the movie, you know, people just come onto the court and bang, bang, bang. And I'm just one of the guys, you know, I'm very like, I'm just like that. And so I think when you're like that, good things come the other way, you know, for you. But to go back to the movie, the one thing, the only thing I was a little disappointed in, in the movie was not how they portrayed Capriati, Jennifer, because she's one of my favorite students of all time, okay? Because she was really the first girl. She was before Venus and Serena. And people don't understand. That's fair game, the way they portrayed it. But in the credits, at the end of the movie, when you saw that crazy video that Richard had and you know all that video, they should have put it in the credits. If people don't even know Jennifer Capriati, generation, you know, that was a long time ago. You talk about the comeback or you talk about uh, the American dream. Here's a girl, top 10 in the world, up to whatever, number six, disappears on, off the face of the earth. Uh, it wasn't as bad as everybody said, okay? She doesn't even play pro tennis for a while. And then she comes back, kind of in and out, in and out, in and out. In and out, in and out, in and out. No one believed in this girl except Stefano Capriotti, Denise Capriotti, and Rick Macy, even though I wasn't in the picture. She not only comes all the way back, not number 50, not number 20, not number 10, number one, she wins three Grand Slams, an Olympic gold medal, huge contract from Fila. Remember, she was out the door. She was gone came all the way back. The moral of the story is you don't lose the talent. You lose the confidence and the fitness. You don't lose the talent. You don't, listen, you're not, if you're top 10 in the world on the women's tour at 14 years old, you have something. But I think that shows her uniqueness. And I wish that would have been in the credits at least about how she came back. The people don't know anything about her. And I kind of did something on YouTube about her and her mom was very appreciative of that. So, but Jennifer is one of my all-time favorites. And, you know, so but someone asked me this about technique because they were saying, how do people like Medvedev and Brooksby, they were telling about their technique, how they survive. And I was telling them, that's a whole nother discussion. And they asked me who was the best ever. And I said, it was Jennifer. She had a cup of water on her head, one on each shoulder. She'd rip a ground stroke and not spill a drop. I mean, she wouldn't spill a drop of water. Her balance was impeccable and the ball was on a string. You know, even to this day, I haven't seen that. Okay. So when she checked a lot of those technical boxes and just those fundamentals, that's easier to come back and play through the competition. Do you think that's possible today, for example, with someone like um, Ash Barty, for example, who's now retired and not saying she wants to come back, but can they come back within a certain time frame and actually do damage on the on the tour? Yeah. Barty can, and here's why. She's the Australian surgeon. She can slice you and dice you. She plays chess. Most of the other girls are playing checkers. They just want to tear your head off, which is okay. If you're good at tearing someone's head off before they tear your head off, you're going to win at tearing the other one's head off. But Barty can, she's more surgical. And so it's a little easier for her. And she never got enough credit, in my opinion, you know, how good an athlete she was. Because maybe she didn't look like Venus, okay? And she had a good serve. And people don't understand. She could hit the corner because she had great feel from playing cricket. And she was almost like, you know, 
she was very athletic, but the way she played, she could definitely come back and be number one in the world. Okay. There's no doubt about it because I like her style and I think it'd be easier for her because she could mess you up sooner where it's not just like bang, bang, bang. So 100% she could come back and same with Osaka. So Osaka will come back because she has a great serve, great mover. She has firepower on both sides. So she'll eliminate, you know, most of the world until she gets into that top 20, just by that. Then once she gets the, the mental part back of that championship DNA of winning three grand slams, I believe, uh, she'll get right back in there. Do you feel like there are um, big differences between W2A and ATP? Or do you feel like they're getting closer now? Like, for example, like the forehand used to be quite different now, but the, we see more and more modern forehands like Sviontek, for example, playing with amazing forehand and, and winning a lot of points because her technique is a little bit more ATP style. Do you Wait, see that who happening? Did you say? Who did you uh, say? Sviatek. I think her Polish yeah. name is Sviontek. You know, right? yeah. That's, yeah. Absolutely. You know, I think, I think because there's so much online and, you know, Brian Gordon and I were ahead of the curve and we explained it. It's out there. People have, you know, duplicate, duplicated it, maybe tweaked it, modify it, but they there's enough principles they understand, or they just watch video, okay, of how to do this because the game is faster, okay? Um, and as long as you're almost in the neighborhood, it's better than taking the racket to the other side of your body and making a semicircle where we both know and with a faster surface, and a faster ball under pressure that might break down a little bit and be more complicated. Okay. And then you start chipping it or you come off your back foot or you got to go upstairs with it. Okay. So I think, um, yes, you're seeing more and more of that. And, um, Jennifer Brady, who I saw at 15 when she was here at the, one of the Americans, she had the ATP forehand and people, I was explaining it to the coaches and they said, well, it looks kind of different. I said, she'll have one of the best forehands on the tour. And I know she got hurt or whatever, but her forehand's faster and heavier than anybody. It's all physics now. And you're seeing more and more of that out there, but you got to start this early. Like I said, it's hard once you're out there to reprogram those reflexes and change muscle memory, you know, because you're having success. You know what I mean? You might even want a grand slam, but the question I have, could it have been better? And that's the way you got to look at this stuff. Could the serve have been better? Could the, this have been better? And I look at that all the time with all players. Just think of Arantxa's head judge Vicario, who was like a little water bug stopping and starting, backhand money, great competitor, forehand, you know, shaky to say the least. Okay. What if she'd have had Steffi's forehand at least? Or what if she'd have had Federer's forehand? She'd be sitting here with maybe 15 grand slams. I always play the what if. Because that starts early on, and that's kind of what I do. I try to put Humpty Dumpty together at a young age, technically. And if I put it on a great athlete with great genetics, with a great work ethic, something can come out. And even if you look at Kennan, when I had her at seven, you look at her swings, they, they, they were back to Alaska, you know, and I got her in the neighborhood a little better, not ATP, but shorter is better if you understand efficiency of motion. So yeah, I think the coat, the players kind of lead the way. Like I said about Alcaraz, okay? His take backs higher. He keeps a hand on the racket till the ball bounces or Federer lets go earlier. His is higher. 
He has more of a gravity drop. So all these things, it's not one size fits all, but as long as you're to the outside and the leg drive initiates the racket speed and the racket flips down and back, you're going to learn the ATP forehand. Yeah, it's a great way to to end on, I think, because I know you have another meeting and you're a busy guy, but it's been uh, very nice to talk to you, very inspirational. I think all the listeners will agree and uh, we will follow your progress with your students and everything. And do you have any shout outs in terms of how people can get a hold of you or watch your stuff? Absolutely. Listen, I'm probably the most accessible guy ever. My phone rings and I answer it and they go, wait, I go, this is Rick. They go, wait, no, it's not. And then I say something from the movie like bang or whatever. They go, it is him. You sound like the guy. No, listen, my phone number is everywhere. You can email me info at rickmacy.com. I analyze videos. I do thousands. People send me videos, boom, boom, boom. And I correct things. So they can go to my website, www.rickmacy.com, Instagram, uh, Twitter. I, I tweet a lot. Um, I'm very accessible. I'm very engaged because I think the best way to uh, help people is for me to personally be involved so I can expedite the learning curve and make it happen quicker. Fantastic. Yeah, you're you're passion for the sport is infectious and inspirational thanks a lot rick and uh all the best now and i hope to see you on uh primetime network very soon <laughs> all right you got it we'll do it again and we'll be talking about sophia in the near future yeah yeah for sure i want to all right yeah. you got it thank you thank so you. much thank you all right thank you.